And we're on the 104th episode of Absolute Essek. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we're happy to be here again. We've got Leaf joining us. Um, and uh, Leaf has been on the podcast before. Uh, great supporter and you know we're happy to have him we're going to talk about multiple different things we've been out for a couple of weeks uh doing some trainings and other things so it, if we look a little fatigued on camera it's because we've been on camera for you know the last what i don't know how many ever days it is right ken um but uh as, yeah as far as announcements go um yeah the black hat course is over so yeah whatever right like if you if you missed it you missed it hey <laughs> next time um we we are going to be doing a virtual course it looks like for uh global appsec uh san francisco uh sometime in october we're still getting details details on that as far as what it looks like from a virtual perspective um how long the course and all that sort all that sort of information so uh we will pull that back together um, and we'll let people know once once it yeah, once once it solidifies, um, and it looks like Ken just had enough, so he's out. Uh, I think he's having some audio technical issues, so he'll jump back on. Uh, besides that, uh, this week, if you didn't know, there is a DefCon is going on, um, and uh, it is free this year, right? So if you go to DefCon.org, sign up, join the Discord. I'm pretty sure the first round of talks have actually already dropped via Torrent. Uh, and they're on the media server for DEF CON, so you can go check those out. Um, and then all the hacker tracker stuff that I do as far as scheduling events and all that is in there as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's it from an announcement perspective. Uh, we had Leaf come on today uh, to talk about a couple of different things that he's been working on over at Segment um, and the the way that they go about doing that. We thought, we, we thought it was fairly interesting. Um, so uh, yeah, apparently we're already getting uh, comments, Leaf, on your your haircut or your lack of haircut. I guess is what is what we were saying. But anyway, Leaf Dressler uh, from Segment. If you don't know who he is, uh, well, welcome to the show, Leaf. I should I should say, happy to have you again. Thanks. Yeah, I got to stay safe during COVID. You know, just limiting my interactions with the outside world, and part of that includes not getting a haircut. I guess so. Not getting a haircut. Uh, yes. Yeah. We'll see where it's at by the end of this thing. <laughs> by the end of the podcast? Like, is it growing that fast or is it just? By the end of COVID. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, so let's see. Uh, yeah, so th there was a couple of things that we mentioned. And Ken, welcome back. Thanks for shifting. No worries. Um, the uh, there was a couple of things that we wanted to talk about today. Uh, the first was um, authentication, right? Um, and I know you guys just shifted your whole authentication service, or you built some sort of new authentication service at Segment. Um, so we'll dig into that um, shortly. But uh, from a code review and applications perspective, authentication is something that always pops up. And so there's quite a few concerns that we have about it. So anyone that's listening, if you've got questions, um, on different aspects of, uh, of authentication, please feel free to jump in or jump in the Slack channel and we'll we'll try and answer them or we'll get Leaf to answer them. So um, yeah, let's let, let's talk through it a little bit, Leaf. Uh, you know, from an authentication per service perspective, um, what is it that you were uh, what is it that you were doing? 
Um, why is it that you brought that topic up? And we'll go from there. Sure. So it was actually kind of rebuilding two services that already existed. We had one service that our uh, application gateway would talk to directly um, that would handle your authentication flow, whether you were coming in via SAML or uh, username and password or MFA or any of those um, related things. And then there was a separate older service that was the service that actually handled with minting the JWTs and revoking them and checking if they're revoked. And so for the most part, all this logic did exist in these two services, um, but we wanted to combine them to um, make some upgrades to the way that we were handling JWTs and also lay the foundation for some API work um, because we wanted to centralize our authentication into the single service. And so whether somebody is authenticating programmatically via an API or whether they're authenticating um, via the web, we wanted everything to flow um, through this single service. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a, a pretty standard like engineering process, um, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like we, we, we have a tendency to, yeah. Well, I mean, we build out an application we get, we get different services that line up and then at some point we want to consolidate or we want to simplify how they're actually laid out. Um, and the, the considerations that go into authentication um, are, I mean, it's one of the most uh, um, important parts of an application, right? So there's, there's a lot to consider there when you are rebuilding an authentication service. And I know that you know, within Segment, you guys are very engineering focused. Um, so how, how did you go about defining the uh, kind of the requirements for building that authentication service outside of, hey, this is what we used to do, so we're going to do it in the new service, um, and then like security considerations, and talk about the process that you went through there. Sure. So I actually had done some work about a year and a half ago uh, within our one of our older authentication services when we added MFA. And so I was relatively familiar with the service um, that we were building on top of or kind of rewriting. Um, and so it was kind of a natural choice from the security side to have me involved in the project. Um, whenever you're working on something of security importance, I think the best thing that you can do is have some really top-notch developers working on it. And that usually means going outside of the security team. And so we had to partner with uh, a team that was also invested in this service, um, the team that owns it. And we wanted to pull them in to make sure that we were, you know, making the right engineering choices. We also had, um, you know, a shared set of goals. They wanted to uh, do some work here to support the new API tokens. We wanted to make some changes to the way that we were handling the JWTs. And so there was a, a natural partnership between these two teams to uh, collaboratively work on yeah. these, these features together. And so I think that finding a team that's willing to have, take the, take on this shared goal with you, um, is really important. Um, unless you're a team that actually has, uh, the resources to like build and maintain whole services on your own, which, uh, not every security team does, uh, like, nor should they have to, a lot of these are really engineering problems that have a security slant to them. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the security team should be the team that owns them. Um, 
I don't really think of building security features as that different from any other feature. No, yeah, and, and I would agree. I, I mean, um, and Ken, I wanted to ask you about that as well, right? Like, so segment, it feels like that that engineering culture, and I know that exists at GitHub as well, that like all these, there's different kind of like security services, I guess. Um, but um, Segment is obviously probably a smaller team than GitHub, right? Uh, just from a developer community perspective. So at GitHub, do you guys approach things similarly as far as building out security services? Is it assigned to like the AppSec team specifically, or is there a team in security that's like security engineering, or is it just sprinkled throughout the organization? It used to be the AppSec team, called the AppSec team, but it was really like a small deviation of the AppSec team, which has now become formalized as of like, I don't even remember. It was, it was, it was within the last few years, we, we formalized moving the people that were on the AppSec team working on product features, security-centric product features over to their own team called Product Security. But believe it or not, <clears throat> they have less to do with like the like IIM or IAM or um, like single sign-on uh, type type bits. That's actually an entirely different team, which um, has very security-minded developers. But they're they're engineers. They they could move to work on anything that they choose yeah. to. But they understand. Like I don't know for segment how you guys how how it is for you, but for us, you know, there's there's so many different um considerations that even making any minor changes could have a big impact and so the, the the people that have been on the people that are on those teams have been working in that ecosystem for a long long time and they know all those little those little weird dark corner and edge cases and i'm not sure you know if segment if it's similar for you or if it's I mean, more every or less. engineering organization <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, you, I mean that's true. You just need people who have been around for a while and like have seen what works and what doesn't work and knows enough of the other systems to like understand like what 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 how things interact. Um, but yeah, we have a kind of a uh, like I would say that you know we're obviously a younger team than the GitHub security team just by nature of being like a a younger business. Um, we have a similar division that's kind of starting um, between application and product security and everybody's definition of product security is different. I would say that ours is actually pretty similar to GitHub, um, yeah. which isn't too surprising considering like the influence that uh, we've gotten from like, being pretty close with the GitHub uh, security team. So we actually draw a similar line where product security is more focused on um, the like tangible or indirectly tangible features that customers interact with. So I would consider like the login service, something that's kind of both of those things. Um, but something like MFA is, uh, you know, a little bit more direct, like, you know, you have to go and make a, a point to go turn on MFA. Um, and then for application security, that's more focused around like training and tooling and like helping engineers be able to make good security decisions on their own. Um, as well as like design reviews and threat models and um, a lot of the things that I think kind of fall into like the historic AppSec bucket, like running external pen test, that kind of thing. And yeah. so right now our application and, and product security teams are combined. 
um, like people kind of float like freely between those two teams. But um, I think as like the org gets bigger, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we had uh, like a similar split, um, like as, as you were describing at GitHub. Yeah, since you brought up MFA, it's kind of funny. I actually saw this yesterday. Um, well, two things. For one, I saw this yesterday, which was interesting. I'll circle back in a second. But another thing you said was, you know, you guys, we do collect. Yeah, you're right. We've collaborated with your team. You've hooked me up with uh, one of your team members to discuss threat modeling so I could like try and pull from their knowledge and try and knowledge share there. So yeah, we've definitely collaborated quite a bit. Um, but that goes both ways for sure. But I thought I, I saw this yesterday since you mentioned MFA and since we're talking about authentication server. Uh, I guess MFA resets, they're no longer being processed for like free users. And uh, I guess that that makes sense, right? Um, there I mean, is a, the hardest part of MFA for sure, right? Is is doing resets. Um, I think yeah, in, in like B2B software, it's a little bit easier because you can delegate some of that responsibility to um, like, the workspace or the organization or you know whatever you want to call it um and you can kind of inherently use the trust that is combined between saying like okay hey like this person's an admin for the workspace like this person's part of their workspace um you know they work at the same company like let's kind of go through um our existing like business relationship with this organization to like help them get back into their account but when it's just a solo person in an account like you're trying to deliver MFA for the vast majority of people who are just trying to protect themselves like from credential stuffing. But then there's also the subset of your users that, uh, you know, really do have to deal with like nation state actors and, you know, really sophisticated attackers trying to get access to their account, like people that would be willing to go do like a SIM swap or something like that. And so, you know, I, I get it. Like I get why they wouldn't want to deal with the MFA resets um i do kind of think that they should have taken a little bit more like varied approach on their approach to sms um as they mentioned in the in the blog like sms delivery in other countries uh you know isn't as reliable as in the united states and so um i understand that it isn't something where you can just say like oh well if you want to back up like sign up for sms because that isn't an option for everybody but it does seem like that is a reasonable fallback for a lot of people in countries with good SMS delivery to say, okay, you know, you can either use the app or you can use SMS, um, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, take that risk of using SMS MFA, which for most people isn't really a risk, but um, yeah. So, and on that note, last time you had, uh, oh, and by the way, yeah, like this is, this is totally, so, the reason I posted that GitLab article is it, it's absolutely like true. It's difficult to do these resets. It's difficult to do it. And, and, and also, by the way, we also do the same thing last time I checked, which is um, uh, restricts SMS for MFA um, in, in certain country codes for, like you mentioned, specifically deliver deliverability issues. In fact, we still get bug bounty submissions where they're like, yeah, but I could add it if I bypass the controls. We're like, yeah, that's not like our. That's not a concern. You're, We're just trying to like. You're only going to play yourself if yeah, exactly. if the SMS doesn't get to you. It's like, yeah, it's it's something that you know really only affects your your own account. Yeah, so don't if you're listening and you're going to submit that as a bounty, don't. It's, it's useless. But no, it, I mean it's it's absolutely like, 
yeah, it's not a, at all um, about that one company. It's it's definitely about the fact that we all have these similar issues. Last time you were on, you talked about as a prevention for credential stuff stuffing. If I remember correctly, you guys engineered a solution where as you enter your um, credentials, it gives you just a, like a warning, right? It wasn't oh, it just yeah. a warning. Yeah, we're we're hooked in with the have I been pwned API. Um, and so we'll, we'll tell users when they're signing up, like, Hey, this is a breach password. Um, and then we also use the, uh, ZXCVBN library from Dropbox, which doesn't make you do, you know, password one exclamation mark to meet the requirements, but it instead like checks your password against like common, um, passwords and like repeating characters. And it's obviously way more sophisticated than like eight characters uppercase, lowercase, symbol, whatever. Um, and it actually like meets all of the NIST guidelines uh, if you just do those two things for the like the password stuff because like NIST actually recommends that you check against like a list of known breach passwords. They recommend that you allow users to pick a set of um, like various password strategies. Uh, they recommend not doing like password rotation, forced password rotations, unless you think that there actually hasn't been a breach and stuff like that. So um, with that, with that, and then the have I been pwned library, uh, or API, I mean, you, you can do a pretty good job on uh, helping users pick good passwords in a way that isn't um, annoying. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, when you came on, it was a pretty new, it was a pretty new feature. And uh, so that's why I kind of wanted to double back and just see how that had all kind of panned out, you know, because um, we hadn't really talked about it too much since, uh, since then. So uh, I think it's it. been good. <laughs> I mean, we haven't gotten complaints about, uh, about it. And so and I mean, I guess it's kind of one of those things where even if we did, we probably wouldn't make changes um, just because we want to remain secure yet and practical. And I think it, it does meet those requirements. Yeah. So was that part of the, the move that you made was, uh, well, the new service that you're building here? Um, um, no, this was actually stuff that, that we added um, previously. So that this was some of the stuff that like I had worked on before in the same like service that we ended up rebuilding. Okay. Um, and that's what I mentioned like briefly earlier, like I did have some experience working uh, in a service. I helped build out like the, the back end for MFA. And yep. so it was kind of revisiting and like rebuilding this service um, with some software engineers as well. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, from a like integration perspective, like you integrating with that team and I don't know, it's a, we, we hear a lot about pushing left, right? as far as like all yeah. of the the, the security team. Yeah, it's the hot whatever, right? But uh, realistically, it sounds like that's what you've done in like helping guide the team out. And I, I wondered how that came about. I, I mean, I know you guys are very integrated with the, the engineering teams at Segment, um, but in, in this case, um, how, how did you go about that, right? Like, it sounds sure. like the, the features were there, but what was it that, that happened and spurred and how did that go? Like, what could somebody take away to, to implement that sort of an integration in their own uh, organization if they don't have it? Yeah, so I think at like the more thematic level, this came from our constant desire to want to become better software engineers on the security engineering team. 
and that's driven by us wanting to give good recommendations when we are reviewing uh, design docs or reviewing code or, you know, somebody asking us a question. Like the last thing that we want to do is like, you know, one of the security teams that you hear, hear forward stories about where they're just like, oh, our security team's so dumb. Like they gave us all these recommendations that don't even make sense and aren't practical and like, you know, are way too much work to implement. Like that's the last thing that we want to be. Yeah. And I think whatever part of security you're in, whether it's, you know, detection and response or cloud security or app security or uh, GRC or, you know, it doesn't really matter. Whichever teams you partner with the most closely, you're going to be a better partner to them the more you know about their workflow. And so I think if you're a security engineering person that's excited about DevSecOps or shifting left or, you know, whatever you want to call it, because it means that other teams are going to learn more about security responsibilities, you should be trying to learn more about these other teams as well, because it's not just like, oh, we're going to make everybody else do security stuff. It should also be about you learning like what those teams are doing as well. Yeah, I, I, I know we had Abdullah Manowar on the podcast a little while ago. Um, he talked a lot about this, about how um, when he joined, I think it's Appian, right? One of the first things that he was responsible or what, what he had to do as a security person was actually um, embed with an engineering team for the first couple of weeks and actually push some sort of source code, right? So he had to learn the app well enough that he could push some source code, you know, fix a bug, whatever it was, as a part of, hey, you're learning to be one of our uh, engineers, basically, before you go be a security person. We realize your security, but that's the best way to, to embed yourself in an organization as it is. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I, when and, I started at Segment, I did yeah. something similar, like, Really, I didn't have a lot of uh, like professional software development experience. Like I did computer science in college and like I had written some tooling when I was a consultant to like solve problems, but I'd never had to write something that like customers would depend on. And so a lot of the stuff that I did when I was like starting out at segment was just uh, fixing like small things that had gotten reported by our bug bounty program, you know, like P3s and P4s, stuff that are valid issues, but like aren't necessarily going to be top of mind for um, like your average development team. Uh -huh. um, and that was a great way to like learn about our app, learn about just development practices at segment. And, you know, you still have to get your, your pull requests reviewed and stuff like that. So it was also a great way to meet people and learn from people that are like way better developers uh, and have them just shred your PR. Yeah. Uh, and then, <laughs> You know, after a handful of times, you're like, oh, okay, I actually like know most of this stuff now, and now I can help other people on my team. Um, I think that's a big takeaway too. It's like when you go and do these, um, you know, embedded projects, or you know, really any learnings, like try to share this knowledge with your team. You know, you had an, an engineering team that like took time to teach you a bunch of stuff. Don't just sequester that knowledge. Like try to help other people on your team. Um, you know, learn learn things. Um, that were taught to you by by other engineers, or even just anyone at your company, really. Not even, they don't have to be an engineer. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Lewis had a good comment here, right? People need to stop hiding in silos and get exposure to other organization functions. Security people need to be involved in engineering practices or failure. And that's, yeah, yeah, yep. I agree. I, and yeah. Oh, go ahead. 
Oh, no, no, I was, I would, that's what I was going to say too, is I totally agree with that, right? Like uh, in, in our course, we always talk about like, oh, you're looking at a, you know, a code uh, repository, but the first thing you got to do is get to know the application, right? And the same thing holds true for organizations, right? If you don't understand how the ap applications are built or the politics that go into it and how everyone communicates um, and builds the application itself, you, you're not going to be super effective as a security person, right? Like, I, I just don't understand how you would actually function in that sort of an organization without getting to know those pieces. So what were you going to say, Leaf? Man, yeah. I still have. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think it also goes beyond just writing code. Um, a lot of the valuable things that I learned when embedding within these teams was actually not the code portion. Obviously that was super valuable too, but um, it was also like helping write the design docs. So working with a product manager to actually create like the product requirements documents and the software design docs and breaking these things up into, you know, sprints and tickets and, and all that stuff. Um, you learn a lot about like how software teams actually function beyond writing code. And so when we were talking about, uh, you know, building SCIM, one of the things that the product manager uh, helped me with was tying our current SSO customers and the different identity providers that they were using to ARR. And so we, you know, figured out like, okay, you know, how many customers use Okta? How many customers use one login? How many customers use Azure uh, Active Directory? And then tying those customers to revenue so that when we were going through the planning, we can say, okay, hey, this could have a meaningful impact on, I don't remember what the number was, like, let's just say $100 million uh, of revenue. Um, and you just start thinking about things from a little bit more balanced perspective. And you start thinking about things in terms of business impact, customer impact, rather than you know, just from like a pure security lens of like, oh, I want to help make our organization more secure, which is obviously yeah. very important, but your your business doesn't exist to be secure. Your business exists to serve customers. And, you know, part of that is providing a secure piece of software, um, but it's certainly not the only reason why company or why companies give you money. Yeah, exactly. Ken, what were you going to say? <clears throat> oh, um, I don't really remember, but uh, while while I'm talking, I'll I'll mention that um, I actually struggle currently with with that because I'll, I'll get embedded with with teams for longer term projects as we've gone to more of a start an assessment with um, before any codes written with an architecture design review sort of discussion set of discussion. And then for the very big projects, we'll do like, for instance, later this afternoon, I have a, uh, it's like, I think at this point, it used to be weekly, every other weekly meeting with the team that's working on a big project. Um, and so we want, it's just, a, it's a, always a constant struggle because, you know, I might have several teams doing different things and it's like, I really want to, um, yeah, it's kind of like, I think what Leaf was saying is I really want to be, because I see what, what what they're going through and I see um, the effort they're putting in and I see the goals they're trying to meet and the, the, what it's going to do. Like, it, you know, Hey, it's very concrete. If we build this, then that this will happen. And it's very positive for the community. It's very easy to see how it's positive. So it's kind of hard when you have multiple teams, cause your team, like AppSec team still has our initiatives. We're still trying to push forward. We still have, 
things we're trying to improve about our just every, the way we operate, but you're also embedded with several other teams who are doing the same thing for whatever their product and feature is. And so for me, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the constant um, difficulty is figuring out like, cause I want to be with them. Like I want to, to be a part of that team and the effort, but you know, it's like figuring out when to pull back because you just can't, you're not on that team full-time. You're like, they're on that product full-time. You're on, it when you when you can slice out and divvy up your week and you know so it's it's even as a, I guess what i'm saying is it's just that, that that like that is a difficult thing to do long term i this experiment's been going on for about six months and um yeah it's being embedded with the team's great very difficult long term is, is what i'm trying yeah. to say you have to balance like with everything in life right there's always a balance to everything but yeah yeah our embeds have been uh, like project focus. And so we'll usually have a joint OKR between the two teams, which helps ensure that both teams are investing resources into whatever this thing is. Um, and so ours is usually for, you know, like a quarter ish amount of time. Um, but as you were saying, like just going through like the design process, uh, you know, from the security side is one thing. Um, and, you know, you, you get, uh, invested in like whatever this project is, like when you're reviewing the design docs and like going through the planning. Um, it's also really valuable to go through that process as a software engineer. And so when we were writing up um, the design docs for these different things, um, I actually scheduled a security review with somebody from my team. And I was on the, the side of the developer with the other developers that were involved in the project. Um, and so I think that that is uh, as many processes that you're making software engineering teams do, if you can go through as many of those as possible as a software engineer, it's going to help you refine like which parts of the process are actually necessary and which ones are, are bringing value versus ones that just like kind of seem like a good idea in theory and then don't actually really like translate to like meaningful improvements. Yeah. There's another reason I think that's useful and all, and maybe it's very specific to me and that psychology and not everybody goes to this. I don't know, but, um, sometimes like for one, uh, one of the, one that's on the top of my head, um, like a super big project for GitHub is, um, I noticed that as I go along, like as I'm with embedded with the team longer and longer, there are things that I start to just because I see how technically difficult some initial requirements we put into place were when we didn't have all of the full information on like, you know, the different technology stacks and what issues we'd run into, just like any engineering project, you run into stuff you didn't foresee. And so then you have to scale back some of those requirements. And I, I struggle with, because now I'm part of the team, I'm like, oh, we could just like forget this security thing. Cause like, it's not that big of a deal, you know? And, and then, and then, you know, I'll talk to another person on the security team and they'll be like, well, no, I think that's still, that's still fairly important. Um, I wouldn't cut that out. I would maybe do this alternative. And I'm like, crap, I should have, I should have stood my ground or figured out a, an alternative in a better way. And, and that's, and that's, I honestly think that's just a, a, a side effect of being embedded with the team is I'm more like, it's almost like I'm too empathetic or something yeah. like that, you know? And so what you're talking about, you kind of, kind of found a way to um get around that effect maybe i don't know 
if, if, again, I don't know if this is something that happens to anybody else. No, I mean, like, I think you naturally like want the team to like you. And if you're embedded within the team, you obviously like need their help for, you know, code reviews and like, they probably know more about the technology than you do. And so like, you, you want them to like you so that they help you. <laughs> and so I could definitely see how it'd be easy to be like, oh, well, you know, let's just not do this thing that's annoying and difficult. Um, because people don't like doing stuff that's annoying and difficult. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, our, I our engineers, I, man, they're they're really like cool to come up with like hard, difficult solutions. But it's it's sometimes more 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 or less me looking at timelines, being like, I know what you have to do now, and like some things might get pushed aside that like maybe shouldn't. And and it's, yeah, I mean, not from a security perspective, just from a it's just it's a it's a yeah, it's a constant like struggle. We'll say. I wanted to put Ken's question up here, by the way. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'll, do you, Seth, do you, I'll read this real quick for those that are listening on audio. So sure. Ken Toller had, with regard to balance, how would you embed AppSec engineers that may not have a software or product engineering background into a team? Leaf. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that kind of goes back to what I was originally uh, talking about with like the steps that I took when I first joined Segment is like, focus on like fixing small things that like teams know that they probably should be fixing, but aren't necessarily going to get prioritized um, versus like trying to go in and build like a small feature, a medium sized feature. Cause it's usually easier to just like make some changes to some stuff based off of some other things that you can find in the code base. That being said, that does assume that you have like at least some base level of engineering experience. And I guess if somebody has, you know, never done like Hello World, you probably would need to take some sort of like course or do some sort of online learning or, or something like that, just to get that base understanding of programming so that you know, like, you know, for loops and variable assignment and conditionals and like all the things that are kind of like the same building blocks across like every relatively normal language. Um, but then once you have that, I think that like doing bug fixes and, and stuff like that is uh, a good way to, you know, start learning how your organization builds software. Yeah. I, like, I, and I did want to go back to that. I'm glad that qu question came up because the, I think it's an important aspect when you are moving into uh, like the product security or the application security side inside of an organization or with an application. Like I, I've never learned more about an application than trying to fix vulnerabilities within it, right? Like how it's built, how the testing process works. Like I, I love saying like we're glorified QA testers as security people, and then like, but we do it poorly and we document our documentation is crap, right? But um, that that's realistically where we fit if you're looking at a, a full-blown kind of like integration and SDLC is security testing is just one of the integration tests that's ha that happen. So being able to build the application to fix some of the things like you did, Leaf, is uh, like goes a long, long way. And it'll also teach, give you some empathy to Ken's point about what the developers go through when they get a P3 or a P4 that comes in from the bug bounty, right? Is it's like, hey, just because it it looks simple on paper and it was really easy to exploit doesn't mean it's easy to fix. And it may take two to three weeks to actually go in, fix something, tweak it, and then there's conditionals and edge cases that you're gonna end up dealing with. Like it, it's a difficult problem to solve. 
Um, and if you've never tried to do it, I mean, even go and start with something like Juice Shop, right? Try and fix some of the vulnerabilities in, that are in there, uh, you know, if you've never done it before to give you some sort of empathy on how that actually happens. And I mean, Ken and I have been through this in the past, trying to build like courses and things like that around vulnerable apps and fixing them and then testing. It's it's not an easy process, right? You also realize how long fixing stuff takes. Like one of uh, our really senior engineers at Segment, um, you know, says pretty regularly, it's never just a quick fix. And yeah. it, it never is like, you'll that's like something that you know i would think you know a couple of years ago i was like oh this seems like just such a quick fix like why doesn't anyone fix this it's like nothing's a quick fix it's like maybe the fix is quick but like what about the time it took you to like context switch whatever you're working on get all the development resources pulled down get this thing built you wrote tests you deployed it to staging you tested it there manually you put up the pr you thought everything was good and then somebody that knows way more about the service than you was like, nah, this is like not how you're supposed to do that. Uh, you know, you should do it this much better way. Yeah. Um, obviously they would say it with a little bit more uh, grace, but I'm summarizing. Would they though? Um, <laughs> yeah, plus, plus like, I don't know about you all, but for us, like it's it's both the engineers and AppSec team that tend to delve into all parts of the code base to see if, if the same if the same issue is presented in a different way or in the same way, um, you know, in other parts of the code. So there's also that effort, which takes, I find to be pretty time consuming too, just making sure that it doesn't exist somewhere else. I mean, yeah. So it can be pretty, pretty time intense. Yeah. Intensive. And obviously all that stuff gets faster, the, you know, the better you get, like the amount of time it takes me to fix something small now versus, you know, six months or a year or two years ago you know it's it's obviously much faster but it's it's still like you know <laughs> how long is this thing actually going to take me it's like probably like two hours minimum <laughs> like regardless of what it is almost uh and obviously you know there's exceptions to that but i feel like by the time that you do everything and you know talk to people about what this thing is and get it deployed and check it once it's in prod and whatever is like, I don't know. I feel like it kind of just takes like a couple hours minimum. And that's a, like, and, seg and segments like deployment and like engineering process is actually very, very fast. Like you can have something like merge deployed, like out to production, like within a handful of minutes. So this is definitely not a criticism of like our engineering tooling. Like our engineering tooling is ap actually absolutely top notch. It's more just like, you know, the reflection on, all of the times when I thought, oh, this will just be quick and it like never was. <laughs> yeah, well also if that developer, even if it took them an hour to get everything up and running, that's an hour they weren't working on. Like you mentioned context switching, that's like, all right, so it's an hour they weren't working on that, but also maybe the next thing they had to do is run to an appointment or have a meeting, meeting or, something. or whatever. Yeah, it completely interrupts the time they had allotted for their flow. Maybe they had a two hour window for flow and like, you know, one hour got eaten up. So they never really got into that other hour of flows. So that was pretty much useless. Probably just checking emails, doing some checklist items. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it might be one hour, but it might throw the entire day off. So that's, that's one thing. And I, I want to go back to Ken Toller's question just for a second. Cause I, I had like something that I, I don't know. I, well, okay. Two things. One, uh, you, 
just because the AppSec engineer may have more of a dynamic testing background, less of a software development, maybe they don't understand code as well, doesn't mean that they can't be of serious help when it comes to the design, like especially talking about um, not only the initial sort of design discussions, but also when changes need to be made. It's very easy to at least ask questions like, okay, well, so you wanna lax this standard up a bit okay so so what if i did this like would this be possible it's very easy i i think it's still very easy for a dynamic tester to or somebody with that primary background to to to, to be like hey you know maybe i don't understand the software components all that all that well but i do understand the web and i do understand appsec and i do understand um risks so let me ask you this question developer can this be done uh my concern here would be these three things like how are we addressing those you still can have like a very productive conversation but i think but i think that the one thing you will come across is some level of uh feeling you know maybe maybe imposter syndrome i don't think it's imposter syndrome i think it's actually just a lack of confidence because you know you don't have that skill set that software engineering skill set so that would be a good reason to to say to yourself, look, uh, I need to go and learn this this skill set. I mean, I am an AppSec. I should learn software engineering, and I should learn to code better um, in the long term. But I do think, again, up front, you can have like pretty productive conversations as long as you have confidence in yourself to say, I may not know software engineering inside and out, but I at least understand the web and and standards, and I understand risks. So uh, that's my that's my take on that. Yeah, and I don't think this is something that's like, oh, every security person like needs to know how to write code. I think this goes back to something I said briefly earlier, where it's about whichever teams you need to partner closely with as a security person, the more you know about that team, the more impactful you can be. And so maybe you're on the governance, risk, and compliance team. It's like, okay, how much do you know about like what the legal team does? How much do you know about what the sales team does? If you're on the cloud security team, um, like, you know, how much, what, what do you know about like being an SRE or like, you know, designing systems for whichever cloud provider you're in? Um, we have to say Microsoft, right? Because uh, it, it gets... Um, legally, it, <laughs> legally obligated. Legally <laughs> obligated. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it's for security engineering like that, I think in most cases does happen to be software engineering. And so I think that you're going to be, you're going to receive a huge benefit by like knowing how those teams work. And because I'm on the security engineering team, it's writing code because that's what software engineers do. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and I want, yeah, I wanted to pull something out of that too, that you're, you're talking about, right. Um, anytime that we do well, okay. So we're building something from a security perspective. We're doing an assessment we, we always have kind of this threat model risk profile that we do in our head, right? We try and define that more and more as we push left leaf, right? But um, part of me thinks that we miss opportunities to actually go to those other groups at times and get their take on it, right? So, you know, if you're building some, por some portion of your site that has to do with legal, you should probably talk to them about the risks that are associated with that, right? Um, and get an idea of what they're afraid of, as opposed to just like the software engineering team or the security engineering team. Um, it may not be easy to pull those people together, but I'm pretty sure it's, well, I know it would pay off in the long run because they're gonna get involved at some point, right? If your feature has, has some sort of 
effect on GDPR or on PCI, then at some point it's going to be tested against that framework or that compliance framework or legal framework, what have you. So if they haven't been involved, just like security hasn't been involved in you know, site features, there's going to be a problem in the future, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason why you do a design review is to try and identify risks. And when the security team's looking for this stuff, it's going to be vulnerabilities. But it's the same yeah. thing with having the legal team look at it. Like the legal team is also there to identify risk proactively in many cases. And so I think there's a lot of parallels between, um, you know, legal and security and even just another team. I mean, if it's something that, you know, maybe it's like for your marketing site, like the yeah. marketing team is going to be able to identify risks. They're probably not going to be security vulnerabilities or, you know, probably not going to be like GDPR issues, but, um, they're going to be able to identify risks in this end product that are, it's going to help you not have to like rebuild things or cause damage to the brand or, you know, the, the type of things that like they would be able to identify earlier. Which, which is interesting, right? So this brings up a, um, a company that like I worked with in the past. It was a small, a small startup that was doing very, very well, right? Bringing in a lot of money. Um, I won't mention their name because they, but um, anyway, they had uh, like the security team and the engineering team decided to change some features and disassemble some integrations with uh, um, with Facebook at the time, right? Like some of the ad spend that they were doing there and how that integration worked for getting customers from Facebook to the site itself. And they did this right before um, Thanksgiving. Um, and basically what happened was, yeah, because they hadn't talked to anybody on the marketing side, they didn't talk to like the business, they just went ahead and made these changes. All of a sudden their revenue went from like, like basically dropped by about 60% over this critical time. And it had like um, huge effects on staffing levels, engineers and everything because they lost out on so much revenue over the end of the year you know, from Black Friday on through Christmas shopping because of the changes that they made without talking to marketing, without talking to the, the business side of things. And so like there, there's kind of these cautionary tales that you have to be aware of, right? Anytime, and Leaf, you spoke to this earlier is getting that uh, knowledge from the business side of what they're trying to do and what the business risk is. Right? Like, we're having a lot of discussion about risk today, apparently, but business risk as far as you make a change, you know, you lose a hundred million dollars in, in, in revenue that that's going to affect your job and everyone's job that you, you know, work with. Yeah. Like if you think about that, think about this remote code execution seems really scary, right? What, where does that compare to a hundred million dollars lost? Yeah. It doesn't matter at all. It's it, honestly, yeah. it doesn't like it's okay. Cool. Remote code execution, but you know, critical issue, we'll get it patched, whatever. That's peanuts compared to a hundred million dollars. That that's a real tangible mistake, and and yeah, yeah, arguably way worse than a security issue. Yeah, to be fair. So that'd have to be a pretty bad security issue to result in a hundred million dollars. Yeah, I don't think I don't yeah. think any of the breaches have hit, have hit that right. They may have right, experience. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but you know. It, yeah, that that's a tangible that's a tangible loss, and honestly, I'm surprised that someone didn't say something about that earlier. That's crazy. Yeah, I've never heard yeah. you tell that story before. That's a new one. I, ne I never heard you say talk about that. It's interesting. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, it, it's because it's it was like I I heard about it through back channels with the guys that actually work there, and uh, you know it was.
it's an interesting, interesting to watch um, because the company, like a privately owned company that was just really killing it, all of a sudden, hard times, they're laying off engineers, and it was all, I, it was all due to this, you know, decision, this engineering decision between security and them to to cut off some stuff, and yeah, had a, had a significant impact in, on on the business. So, oh yeah, and you know, when you have mass layoffs, it it, it takes a while to recover from that. That's not, I mean, you're talking yeah. about because what brings in good engineers, which if you if you have great engineers, the rest of your organization can be great. That it can be. It has a better opportunity yeah. because your culture stems from your product, which stems from your engineering team. So yeah, that's um yeah, that's something that's hard to recover from because it's like, oh, I know so and so and so and so and this other person and they all got laid off from that company. So that seems like a gamble. It's just like the, yep. the company who I'm not going to publicly shame, but I did semi privately publicly shame who reached out to, 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 to try and recruit for an AppSec team after they just laid off their entire AppSec team. It's like, no, yeah. what do you, how do you think that that works? Like you can't lay off your entire team because you guys hit a rough quarter and then be like, well, this quarter's looking up. I think a month later I'll try and reach out and hire people like, what do you think you're going to get? You're going to get crickets. People are going to be pissed. Uh, like this is a small community. And any, anyways, sorry, I'm getting off on attention. Yeah. I mean, having, a good, having a good product just makes a lot of other jobs easier. Well, you know, makes marketing easier, makes sales easier, makes recruiting easier. Um, you know, if you're a, a SaaS company and your product's good, uh, it doesn't make the other parts that, organization easy by any means but it definitely makes them easier than if your product was bad for sure yeah money money goes a long way <laughs> it, do, it it does man it, if you have a good if everything's good and, and you're able to like hire the best people in each department it has a huge impact on the overall business you know yep so what's the skim work you're doing i'm curious about that yeah sure so i think that Actually, the way that I ended up on this episode was, I think you saw a tweet that I was talking about SSO and, you know, somebody had mentioned that, uh, like, SSO should be free. And I used to be squarely in the, like, SSO should be part of, you know, one of your basic plans. Maybe not your, your free plan, but, like, something that's, like, relatively low cost. Um, but after doing a bunch of authentication work, it's, like, SSO and this stuff kind of sucks, honestly. Like, <laughs> like I get why companies charge money for this stuff. It's like, you have to build it. You have to maintain it. Uh, you have people opening up tickets because they, you know, built their own SSO identity provider. And they're trying to integrate it with, you know, your system. And, like, there's a non-zero cost to your business. And, like, I, you know, I don't want to say that, like, oh, every feature should be, like, piecemeal divided and you should have to, you know, buy everything. I'm just saying I get it now. And I think that, like, there is a reasonable balance. Like, I do think that, um, you know, I'm, uh, like, a lot of companies, segment included, like, the price jump between, like, having SSO and not having SSO is, is pretty big. I do think that, like you should have like some division there. Like I think that your enterprise like SSO feature set should have all the bells and whistles of like, or, you know, or I think like you, you can have a division between like basic SSO support, which I think is just basically like just in time provisioning and SAML 
And then there's like this other set of features, which is, you know, support for multiple identity providers, uh, not using pre-built connectors, having like a list of excluded SSO users, supporting SCIM um, that like can be part of like this different tier. And like, that's pretty defensible. Um, SCIM is for people that aren't familiar, it's uh, a standard that covers like provisioning, um, deprovisioning, group mapping. You can also do like group creation um, and like, you know, renaming groups. It can update attributes, you know, like the, the person's name within the app or, or whatever. Um, and it really does provide a lot of functionality on top of your garden variety SSO implementation. Um, because typically, you know, when you just in time provision somebody, they usually end up in a role that, you know, doesn't have all the requirements that they need to do their job. When they leave the com company, you know, it's not something that like gets deprovisioned. Uh, so you still have to go in and like manually remove them, um, assuming your organization, you know, cares about like removing people, which I guess a lot of companies probably just don't do. Um, and so SCIM helps with all that stuff. Instead of it being like, okay, you know, click the tile in Okta and then have somebody in the app go and like put you into the roles and then have somebody manually go in and like remove you when, you know, you leave the company or, you know, switch roles or whatever. SCIM is great because it can provision you into the, you know, whatever the app is. And then when uh, you sign in, it's like, okay, you know, I'm in the marketing group in our identity provider that maps to, you know, the marketing group within uh, the service provider, which, you know, service provider is just SSO language for an application. Um, and so your first day is like, oh, I already have all the things I need to do my job. And then when you leave, the identity provider says, okay, you know, delete this user from this thing. And it's a really great set of uh, API endpoints that you know are agreed upon. It's like get slash users, post slash users, uh, get slash groups, get slash group slash ID. Um, I'd say that the spec itself is a little bit weird in terms of like um, you know some of the choices that they've made and like the groupings and like the requests and the response bodies and stuff like that, um, but at the end of the day, it does cover like um, the like the use cases that that you would need to to implement this kind of thing. What was the impetus? What how did how did you get involved with this project? Part of it was because we wanted it for our own app. Um, you know, we like people to have a good first day at segment. We don't want to have to go in and manually deprovision people when they leave. But it's also something that like as you start going after larger and larger customers, like they're just gonna expect this to be part of your SSO implementation, I think. Um, and rightly so, it's like, if they have a thousand segment end users, like that's a nightmare. If you have to manually go in and be like, John just started, you know, put him here. Susan just started, put her here. John got fired, get rid of him from the app. Is like, that's such a pain. And like, there's already a, a protocol or a standard, I guess it's not protocol. Uh, there's already a standard that, you know, outlines like this relationship between the identity provider and the service provider. And so, um, and like a lot of bigger apps have this, you know, like Salesforce has this or like, 
you know, Slack has this, for example. And so I think that once you're somebody that has to administer all these apps, uh, I imagine it's just, it's annoying when you get an app that doesn't have this. It's probably even more annoying when you have an app that doesn't support SSO. If I was a big company, I would just be like, we're not buying anything that doesn't support SSO. We're, you know, we're going to give you enough money that, you know, you can go buy Auth0 or whatever and build SSO for us. Um, when Seth, when Seth and I uh, built an on-demand product together, um, we that was we we did a lot of like uh, demos, you know, and that was mm -hmm. like probably one of the top questions every single time was, does this integrate with our our single sign-on? You know, that's yep. like the number one question from every. It didn't, and you know, it didn't need to be a big company. It's just you know, this hey, you, can 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 we integrate with uh, our SSO and you know. If you don't support yeah. that, it's going to be a big issue. So it's uh, I mean, kind of like also, requirement. Yeah, it's also annoying for the end users too. I remember when I was at Bug Crowd, um, like I helped roll out Okta there. Um, and, you know, maybe we were at like 40 or 50 people at the time. And initially a bunch of the people on the sales team were like so resilient or resistant to like, you know, this new thing that they had to go to. And then like literally a week later, they're like, why isn't this app in Okta? Why isn't this app in Okta? Why isn't this app in Okta? And it went from like, oh, this thing is new and I hate it instinctively to this is so much easier. I log in one time and then I just click buttons to log into everything else. And I don't have to put in my username and password 20 times for the 20 different things that I need to log into. And so it's better for security because you don't have people doing usernames and passwords. You have centralized management and your end users like it better because it's easier for them. Like how many times in security is something better and easier? Like <laughs> anytime you have that combination, it's like you should invest in whatever that thing is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just a business, good good business practice. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah like so were there any technical hiccups there that you've run into? Any, what are your technical? Oh, I'm sorry, Seth. Sound like you had no, a question. No. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You're, you're going right down that path. So, Ask oh, cool. Um, so, curious about the technical considerations. This is, yeah, this is stuff that we haven't actually released yet. Um, it's still stuff that's like under, um, like pre-release development. It's. I would say that part, like one of the challenges was just, uh, like kind of laying the foundation to support, like the SCIM like requests and responses. This is built as part of like some other API work that's really cool and really awesome and like trying to make use of a lot of modern development best practices. And so including this in something else that, you know, was kind of like greenfield development and like had made its own set of assumptions led to some difficulties getting like the initial routes off the ground. But Luckily, like the underlying functionality for like management of like these groups and um, users and things like that is something that was already being handled by another team. And so this was mostly just like building on top of their work and, you know, the like underlying functionality for like getting a group or getting all the groups already existed. It was just a matter of like massaging the data into the format that SCIM defines as part of the like two RFCs. So luckily, engineering teams had done like the heavy lifting of like actually making this data available. And the stuff that I'm doing is kind of just like the research into the standards um, and then the implementation of like actually 
taking the data from like the format that it's stored within segment and arranging it into the form that uh, um, like SCIM is expecting it to be in. Yeah. Yeah, I got all distracted because, you know, looked up the RFC for SCIM and I'm like, oh, that's why I always see the slash me, right? Like in the, the, the different endpoints when I'm looking at APIs, like I, I didn't connect those dots before, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of good functionality in there just from a strict, oh, if it supports SCIM, you know that this exists, right? Um, yeah. yeah. So you should also look, I mean, if anybody is implementing this, also look at uh, 7643 you need to look at both of them because a lot of the like schema definitions and additional information is in the other RFC. Um, uh -huh. And if you, I mean, I think you would naturally come across it. <laughs> I think it would be hard not to, but um, yeah, the other one is also worth looking into, uh, would arguably say more important initially just to get a good yeah. understanding of like the different attributes. Um, yeah, seven, but yeah, yeah read so RFCs. They're yeah. mad boring and they're surprisingly <laughs> hard to copy and paste for something that is like literally just plain text because it just keeps all the like weird new lines and all that stuff. Um, but it is generally put together by a group of people that are smarter than you or at least smarter yeah. than me. And yeah. so, uh, you know, they've, they've come up with a lot of things uh, that are probably there for good reason. Um, it was the same thing when I was working in the authentication service. We had some things that like, they weren't security or functionality prog problems, like everything worked totally fine, but they were they just deviated from the JWT standard. And then when we were trying to translate the work from uh, the older Go service to the newer TypeScript service, the library we were, we were using was like, this stuff isn't right. Like your timestamps are in nanoseconds. Why are they in nanoseconds? They're supposed to be in seconds. And so there's just like weird stuff that you have to deal with if you deviate from this thing yeah. that is standard. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it's probably like the most boring piece of advice that I'll give on this podcast. But like, if there's an RFC associated with what you're working on, try to read as much of it as you can can get through because it'll pay dividends later for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, the one thing yeah, I noticed on RFCs so is to... that, yeah, go ahead, Ken, you wanted to. Oh, no, I was just going to post to this, like, um, for this feature uh, with the uh, OAuth 2 device authorization flow, it's very much like, you know how when you go to your, I don't know, like, uh, your Apple TV or something, and you have to, you know, go to forward slash activate and, you know, activate your device for whatever you know, whatever, like HBO or Showtime or whatever you've got on there. Um, this is essentially that standard. The, uh, uh, there's, I did, I, I've just linked to the, the, to the, uh, change log, not to the actual, um, RFC. I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I think here it is. Here's the RFC. So it's from that link. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, when it came to like figuring out, um, additional security controls, uh, my boss and I were brainstorming and we're like, let's just go through that uh, RFC standard, um, you know, really, really, really read through it. And actually I gave a few like anti-social oh, yeah. engineering tips and, you know, like some really good. And then Auth0 had a great blog post, which we, we were able to reference based off this RFC. But yeah, just reading through the RFC actually gave us a couple ideas, which we pass on developer of this and then he implemented and uh, uh, yeah, now I feel like it's a more secure product just because we read that advice in the RFC. So, There's good yeah, stuff and, in there. 
<laughs> no, there is. And that that's what I wanted to say is like you start reading those RFCs and you realize that they think about the edge cases. They think about the risks be, as they're building out those standards. It's not just a strict specification, but they talk about a lot of that and you'll get some really good information. So if you don't, it, yeah, if you don't implement to the standard, sometimes you'll, you will introduce pitfalls and bugs and vulnerabilities that they sh that should have been covered because they were in the standard for a specific reason, right? Um, As Ken yeah. said, you'll, you'll also learn about cool stuff that's like worth implementing that you wouldn't have thought of in your yep. you know initial design. There were a couple really good parts of the uh, JWT standard that um, made a huge difference for us. Uh, two of them were the, the key ID, which is one of the headers um, so that like anything before that first period in the JWT and a key ID is great because then if you ever have a situation where you need to change the key, um, you can figure out from the header which key you should be using to validate the JWT instead of saying like, oh, did it work with this key? Nope, let's try this other one. Um, the key ID is also great because it allows you to rely on less information from the JWT, which you know, is essentially attacker controlled until you validated it. And so we do put the, um, the algorithm in the header still, um, but we actually don't trust the algorithm in the header in our JWTs. We look up which algorithm to use on the back end based on the key ID. Because, ah, because if you have the algorithm in the header, the attacker could change the algorithm to something else. And then if you use that to validate the key, it could undermine your whole key signing process. So if you were using public, public or let's say you're using uh, public key crypto to sign your JWT and somehow your public key got leaked and you're like, ah, whatever. It's just like, you know, the public key that got leaked doesn't really matter. But if an attacker got that and signed it with a symmetric algorithm, then you could be in trouble because it isn't following like the algorithm that you use to sign it. And so that was one that was really cool. Um, another one is the JTI, which is the, um, it's the ident it's like a unique identifier for the, that instance of the JWT. And the JTI is great because now if you wanna do a revocation list, it's easy. You just store the JTI. You don't have to store the whole JWT. If you want to do rate limiting based off of the JWT, don't have to store the JWT, you just store the JTI. And the JTI doesn't have any value to an attacker. The JTI is just a single claim in that between that second and third period in the JWT um, that serves as a unique identifier, which represents that JWT as a whole. And so if you're designing a new system or you know you have an opportunity to retrofit uh, an old older system that is using JWTs, you should definitely look into adding a JTI claim. Yeah, and I could have swore like, like uh, if you didn't JWT signing library, if you provided like a none algorithm, you, like you've completely compromised the key signing at that point. Um, going back to what you're saying about them allowing, sorry, taking the algorithm from the header is what I'm referencing, not the JTI obviously. JTID. You, you kind of broke up, Seth. Did you hear that, that question? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ask it mind. one more time. It's all good. Nah, it's all good. Don't don't even worry about it. It's not it's not super relevant and important. I actually got to get going. So, 
Um, okay. I'm going to start wrapping it up. Sorry. Yeah. If you, nope. if you want to learn about JWTs, would definitely recommend checking out Louis talk from apps at California. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he's the pen tester lab guy. And his uh, handle on Twitter is S N Y F F. Um, but there's, I think there's only one JWT talk from a guy named Louie from apps at California earlier this year. Niffin Egger. Yeah. I mean, like I, I said, I, I don't know. It's I don't like know how to pronounce it. I wasn't even going to try. Um, speaking of other Louis, the Louie from segment says he wants his t-shirt and I was specifically right. instructed to <laughs> remind That's you of that point. publicly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay. Yes, I have been okay. It's for anybody listening, I'm so sorry. I suck. I need to go get my uh, like. All I need to do is print all the addresses and go to the post office. That's all I need to do. I stink at this, and I keep forgetting about it because my memory is shot because I'm old and you know maybe not as old as Seth, but you know. blah, blah, blah. almost there, almost there. <laughs> Talking about a few years difference, very very close, but yeah. I'm sorry. I am. I apologize. It's the best I can I'll, do. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll put it. I'll put a reminder on his calendar for it. Kaylee, okay, the thing is, I have like two boxes full of shirts. Like, yeah. I need to get rid of them. It's actually a a, a, a pain for me. So yeah, I need to be done. <laughs> All right, sweet. Well, thanks, Leaf, yeah, thanks for coming back on today. Um, and yeah, having the discussion. Right, I know we we. It, that's the most times we've referenced like RFCs on the podcast. I'm pretty sure. So. Awesome. Uh, yeah, if you had told but, three years ago, I'd be pouting yeah. RFC reading. I don't yeah. know if I would have believed you, but it's good stuff. Here, here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Appreciate it. Um, and then we'll, we'll catch everybody online. We'll get this one posted to all the you know podcast places. And yeah, find us online if you've got questions. Leaf, anything, um, any place that people can contact you or anywhere that you'll be that they can actually reach out? So there's nowhere physical I will be for the foreseeable future. Um, yes. Not giving away my home address, but uh, my Twitter uh, DMs are open. Um, I'm, I should be at mentioned in this episode's uh, yep. like notes on, on Twitter or whatever. Um, so yeah, just just reach out. And if you have questions or want to chat or whatever, I'm, I'm happy to uh, send some messages back and forth. Cool. Appreciate it. Um, all right. Well then, yeah, thanks for coming on again and we'll talk to everybody, uh, in the next, yeah, next week, I believe we've got other people on. So, all right. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks.